Well, today I have what I can only say is a very inspiring guest who has an incredible improv journey and life, and his name is Ted Waltmeyer. Hi, Ted. Hello, Margo. It's great to see you today, and we have some mutual friends that will come up in our uh, discussion today, I'm sure. That's Jay Suko and Stephanie McCullough, wonderful people and collaborators with you. Well, and really helped lead me to what I've been able to accomplish after my stroke. And you have accomplished a lot since your stroke. And we're going to talk about the stroke story in a moment. But I know you were a librarian by trade for quite a bit of your life. Yeah, most of my life. I started working in libraries when I was a sophomore in high school and uh, shelved books for the Peoria Public Library. <laughs> and I started out in college as a music major and realized that I didn't have the chops to be a performance major. So I went back to my love of libraries and that's how I spent most of my career. That's really interesting because my first major was music and I realized I wasn't, because I've been playing the piano since about fourth grade as well, and that I just wasn't talented enough to make it. So we have some similarities. So um, let's talk about, you know, and you were a music director for a local choir. Is that something you did too in the past? Um, actually, I've always been a musical theater fanatic. And one of the things that I learned is the music major is the really snooty music conservatories didn't think much of um, Broadway theater music. And um, so I've been able to channel that as a second career. I directed several musicals, my favorite being by Stephen Sondheim um, for community college and high school theaters in the Chicago area. Well, that's brilliant. I love Stephen Soundheim too. What a wonderful music and and the lyrics and everything. It just and I guess Leonard Bernstein was his mentor in a way, wasn't he? In a way, because they collaborated on West Side Story in 1957, and Sondheim wrote the lyrics. Uh, I suggest. I suspect that even though Lenny was his own composer, that Steve had some suggestions of how to make the musical numbers tighter. I bet he did too. So let's talk about the big event in your life, when it happened and tell us a little bit about it because it's a remarkable experience you went through, Ted. Well, um, I woke up in the middle of the night 14 years ago and found that I couldn't move my left side. And I was sure something was going on. So I woke up my wife who was sleeping next to me and she called 911. Um, we got in an ambulance and I was rushed to the um, hospital. Um, and there's some really interesting things because I don't remember a whole lot of what happened there. I just remember being there and not really in my right mind. 
And so my wife was being my advocate. And they kept asking her, uh, when did the stroke happen? Because there's a drug, TPA, that they can give um, people that are in the midst of strokes that deal with the blood clot that's in, in your brain. And they keep asking her this, and there's what they're called the golden window, where through certain times um, they can administer the drug. They finally administered the drug to me. And for a few minutes, according to my wife, um, my left arm and left side was working again, but then it went dormant. So I try not to blame the fact that um, the ER people were not with the program. And if I had got the drug earlier, um, things might've been different. But I've learned to deal with the fact that um, this is what the rest of my life is and to find opportunities to um, challenge myself and hopefully um, others will help me um, get through any of the, the crises that I have. And you were, what, only 56 years old when that happened? Yes. I am just turning 70 this year. Oh. So uh, go figure. Yeah. So then the next, well, then how long were you in the hospital for, Ted? Well, the first week in the hospital was horrible because I'd never been in the hospital before and didn't know that you had to advocate for yourself. Um Big example is once I passed the swallow test, I was able to have thickened liquids, which is a real treat. <laughs> and uh, um, I had a hospital gown on for like three days where the cranberry thickened liquid juice was just there. And I didn't know I had to talk about you know, it might be a good deal if we change this out. So I urge anybody that ends up in the hospital that you really need to speak up. And even though you may be incapacitated, you're the only one that can um, advocate for yourself. Right. And it's so important. I work with a lot of people like with Parkinson's disease and other movement disorders. And to have if you have somebody that can come in and advocate for you, whether it's a spouse or an adult child or even a teenager that can help advocate for you, because the worst place to be alone is in a hospital. Oh, it's absolutely horrible. And uh, the good news was I uh, got transferred and qualified. There's an organization called Mary and Joy Rehabilitation. A hospital here in the Chicago area and you have to be interviewed and they have to realize that you're actually going to go there and do the work because it's a rigorous program. You get physical, occupational, speech, and recreational therapy as part of their program. And 
Um, physical therapy is twice a day. Occupational therapy is twice a day. And some of the other things um, are throughout the week. The great thing about speech therapy was um, I bonded with my therapist because she was a fan of the Chicago Cubs, much like me. So we had lots of things to talk about. And the big thing that she was able to do was to teach me how to speak like a slob. That's speak slowly, speak loudly, over-articulate, and breathe. So again, um, my mouth doesn't work as fast as it did because I'm always concerned about being understood. Now, what was your speech like when you first arrived at rehab? It was, certainly wasn't like it is today, was it? No, it was slurred, and it was it was really odd uh, because I had listened to a couple of voicemail messages that I left while before the stroke, and there was a noticeable difference. Yeah. And there are times that I feel like. My speech isn't back to where it was, but communication is what it's all about. I so agree with you. And um, one thing I was thinking about was, you know, when people have any kind of differentness about them, other people might treat them differently. And did you find people might be talking to you in a very loud voice as if you couldn't hear? Did that ever happen to you or... Well, I've always had a loud voice because I learned how to project when I did theater. I've done some acting. And in fact, one of the most embarrassing um, performance reviews that I had in the library was I talked too loud. That's funny. Yeah, it is. Did people, did um, people, I'm sorry, I'm interrupting. Did, Did people treat you any differently? when your speech was still in recovery or, you know, um, a lot of times there's a, a, a palsy kind of look for people who've had a stroke. Did people- Yeah, I don't, think, I don't think that my face had any of the um, after effects of the, of the stroke. Um, and people, and I've been blessed by this, um, have basically treated me the same way that they did before the stroke. And before we get really get into the improv, it was really important for me to meet people who didn't know me before the stroke so I could see um, how I could better the lives of people that I didn't know. That's a beautiful thought. That's I love that. You're a spiritual person, aren't you? I'm not talking religion. Very I'm much talking spiritual. Yeah. No. Well, music gives me a spiritual base because music just has a way to transcend and bring you different places. And yeah, I am religious. I'm a United Methodist. I participate in my church choir um, and my church family, especially my choir family, have been through a lot of this with me. And um, 
their support has meant so much. So I just want to go back a little bit because when I was taking piano lessons, I learned Bach fugues and Clementi sonatas. Did you have that kind of training as well? Of course I did. And <laughs> though I don't think I ever graduated to Clementi sonatas, I did a lot of his sonatinas. There was a book that uh, my teacher had, and we had to go through each one of those. I never really got good at Bach's three-part inventions. I could do two parts pretty well, but um, my big pieces were Rachmaninoff's Prelude and C-sharp minor. Wow. And with hands as small as mine, um, it really stretched out uh, what I was able to do in control. And Debussy's Claire de Lune was another big Yes, yes. And those were the pieces that I was trotted out to impress people. Well, they're very impressive pieces, I must say. So getting back, how long were you in the rehab, Ted? Uh, I was there three and a half weeks. And the stroke happened at the end of April. And by Memorial Day that year, I was back uh, home trying to readjust to the environment. Um, the good news, and again, here's another shout out to theater people. I'm on the board of a community theater here in Naperville. And before I came home, all of the um, board members came here, put up grab bars, did things that um, there's a railing that we needed to put in so I could get up from downstairs in the basement where the man cave is. And they provided all of that. They didn't charge us a thing. They were just doing it because it was me. Oh, that's lovely. And your wife, is your wife's name Michelle? Yes, it is. So Michelle had a lot of adjusting to do as well, being the what we call the care partner. Now, were you able to ambulate oh, yeah. on your own? Could you walk on your own or did you need assistance? Um, at first I needed assistance. And the really bad thing that came out of the pandemic, by being home as much as I was, um, I am not really comfortable being outside on my own anymore. So I am back in therapy and uh, working towards being independent and back to where I was before the world collapsed. Absolutely. And we're going to get into your show in a bit. But so um, and I, I understand it went from bad luck to worse luck in your household. Is that right? Oh, yeah, because. There's a little thing that's called social security disability. And um, they automatically reject you the first time that you apply. But even being able to apply was an interesting thing because we went to the nearest social security office to us. We thought that's where we needed to go. So we wait and our number is called and we finally get to talk to a person 
and they tell us we're in the wrong office. That oh, all right. my paperwork is up at their office in Bloomingdale. So we had to truck up there, fill out the paperwork, wait, get rejected. And I was rejected because I could do sedentary library work. And apparently the only thing that they think librarians do is sit at a desk and read a book. Well, if that's how, <laughs> if that's how I would have um, allocated my work time, I would have been fired. So I did try to go back as a part-time children's librarian, but was very frustrated because of my physicality. I couldn't reach books on the top shelf for the kids or bend down or be on the phone and the computer at the same time. It just was frustrating. And so I figured that uh, my full-time job ever since then has been going to all kinds of therapies and do any, doing anything that I can do to get back to where I was before the stroke. Right. And um, I don't, I'm a social worker and I've worked with a lot of people who need to be on social security disability. And usually I suggest they get an attorney because that can be the best way, but it still takes an awfully long time. I mean, it's ridiculous how long it takes when people clearly cannot return to what they did before or any kind of, you know, physical work at all. So my heart goes out to you on that. Well, we did hire a turn, an attorney, and again, most of the um, attorneys work on a contingency basis that if they don't think you have a case, they're not going to take it. But if, if, they, if they think you do have a case, then they'll take it and take um, a percentage of what the Social Security back pay was. Right, right. So, so you accomplish that you get on Medicare, of course, and insurance, and then Michelle loses her job. I don't know what the yep. sequence of events was, but when what happened there? Well, basically, uh, she found out in January that um, they were phasing her position out, and unless she found another position within the company, she won't have a job as um as of july 1st so she looks at possibilities and again she interviews um within the company and one of the things that i still don't understand is during the job interview she couldn't tell any of the people that were interviewing her that my job is in jeopardy and I need to find something within the company before July 1st. But um, she ended up um, doing a lot of freelance work for a while. And eventually she is now retired. Um, she got a job as a tech writer for BMO Harris Bank. And all of that just came to pass. So. Um, we're starting to adjust to what retirement looks like for her. It's a big adjustment, and she's gone through a lot of adjustments. 
I mean, she must have been very fearful in the beginning. I, I go through a range of emotions. And, uh, you know, there's so many care partners in our country today uh, taking care of wonderful spouses or parents. And um, but uh, I'm not I'm not saying you need to be taken care of because you're you're functioning at a really great level. So so then what's going on? There's several years before you discover improv. There's several years that are going on. What are you doing during that time, Ted? Um, I'm going to outpatient therapy, um, sometimes three times a week. Um, before Michelle was laid off during that period in June, I had not been uh, able to drive. And uh, so um, two very dear people from my choir um, had ties to Mary and Joy, and they knew that it was really important me, for me to keep track of that and keep on my program. So they would come by the house, pick me up, stay with the uh, therapy sessions, and take me home. So. Um, I guess one of the things that you really find out when you have a crisis like this is who your true friends are and who's going to stand up for you and give you what you need to succeed. And one of my biggest advocates was my, <clears throat> excuse me, Godson, who was 10 years old at the time, he's now 24, and he's we're still close, but um, he was there for his Uncle Ted, as he calls me, and we've had great times in the last 14 years as he's gone through high school and college. Oh, that's beautiful. That's tremendous. So psychologically speaking... What were you going through in terms of your emotions during these, you know, right after the stroke and then during the first year or two of, of continued therapies? There were times I was bad. It's like I didn't have a doctor. I was scared of doctors. Now I've got five or six different doctors and I'm not scared of them. <laughs> but Again, a part of that was me not being proactive with my own health. And my mother um, was able to get up from Florida uh, to visit me in the hospital. And the first thing that she does is she lays into Michelle, well, how come he didn't have a doctor? And Michelle said, I can't tell him what to do. And then she says, well, don't you know there was a history of stroke in our family? I didn't know that because I'm the youngest of three. My mother may have told my brother and told my sister, but all of that was lost on me or else I used my skills of selective listening to tune out my mother. So... Um, <laughs> Again, part part of the situation that I ended up in was my fault. And I did talk 
to a therapist about all of that. And she just kept encouraging me to do what I'm doing and to realize that um, the brain finding its connections after a stroke uh, may take some time. I didn't think that 14 years um, of not being able to use my left side um, would be the reality, but it is. And I just find things that I need to be interested in and celebrate. Absolutely. In fact, um, in fact, we um, went out for a real fancy dinner um, last week to just commemorate that it had been 14 years and I had a $60 steak. <laughs> but, yeah, um, Australian beef, just absolutely fantastic. And Whoa, good for you. We've we've done a lot of traveling ever since too. We were in New York in March, and we did um, eight Broadway shows in <gasps> six days. Oh, what was what were your top shows out of eight? You saw eight shows. Um, well. One of the best was the musical Six, about the Six Wives of Henry VIII. Uh -huh. And what made it special is the music director and I had worked together up at Harper College in Chicago. Wow. And so she got us house seats. She knew exactly where we were sitting. The band is on stage and part of the performance. So as soon as she sees us, she waves, and she basically plays the whole performance to us. So that was wonderful. There's a new musical version of Some Like It Hot, and if you like Broadway, it's everything that you want in a Broadway musical. And then we saw a really smaller show called Kimberly Akimbo, where the heroine um, is 16 years old, but she's got a fictional disease that ages her. So she's played by a 70-year-old actress. And how she interacts and finds joy in her circumstances, knowing that there's definitely a timestamp on her life. Um, stories like that just touch me in a way that they wouldn't have touched me before the stroke. Absolutely. And I recently saw some like it hot and talk about singing and dancing. Wow. That was certainly a treat. Did you go to any improv shows when you were in New York? No, we weren't. Uh, no, we didn't. And I probably should have found some out, but again, with the frequency where we're going to the theater, um, we needed time to rest, but the other show I have to tell you about is Peter Pan Goes Wrong, Ooh. and it was import from London by the people that put together the play that goes wrong, and if you've ever seen that, we almost peed the seats because <laughs> we're laughing hysterical. And then with Peter Pan, anything that can go wrong goes wrong. 
the flying, how they did that, getting people upside down in all of these <laughs> positions and doing it safely. And then my favorite bit is um, all of the um, actors actually have their backstories. And one of the actors um, never can remember his lines. So in Peter Pan Goes Wrong, he's got a pair of infrared headphones on and they're feeding him lines, but he's also picking up lines that are happening backstage that have nothing to do with the plot. And occasionally he'll get a call for a taxi cab or something absolutely ridiculous. And it just, it's my sense of humor. And I'm sure a lot of that was developed out of improv. Yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah. So let's talk about what brought you into your first improv class. What? How did you get that idea? Did somebody suggest it? What happened? Well, we were having a party here um, at the house. And one of the kids who was 25 at the time that worked for me at the library um, was there. And he just said, you know, Ted, I want to take an improv class, but I don't want to go by myself. So I perked up because, again, I was looking at how can I be creative when my body doesn't want me to be what it should be. And so we went through the first class or level A, and I really liked like the teacher um and a couple of different things happened i got really frustrated with object work because i only had one hand to do object work and i was using a cane and so again my balance wasn't quite what it needed to be and when we did some of the warm-up games i would sometimes lose my balance but one of um, the other members of the class was aware of that and would always come to my assistance. And that's when I, when I first learned that improv is all about supporting each other and being in the moment and realizing that things could go crazy, but you always want to maintain a positive spirit and support anybody that's in the scene with you. Absolutely. And who was your first teacher? Um, okay, brain fart. Okay, that's okay. Yeah. Um, basically, basically, we went up through the ranks um, of level E, and that's the highest level. And when you get to level C, you get to do your first show, um, primarily games, um, because they're easier to um, react to somebody because you know uh, what the rules of the game is. And Dale and I would drive into Chicago. Um, Dale at first. And by August of that year, I had gotten recertified to drive. And one of the big things that Dale did for me was 
he made me not being afraid of driving into Chicago and the crazy expressway driving. Wow. And we would we would often stay because they had what they called drop-in classes mm-hmm. where after your class, if you still wanted to do some improv, there was uh, an instructor who would take you through more exercises. And that's where I met Jay Suko. And <clears throat> he was just fun. Yeah. Um, his, his spirit and playfulness is one of his virtues. And so I never had him formally as a teacher, but I did a lot of drop-in classes with him. And if I heard that he was doing the drop-in class, we would sometimes go into Chicago just to do that class. Wow. And then there was a duo, um, Megan and... They're going to kill me because I can't remember names these days. But they did for about a two-year run after improv classes on Wednesday, what they called Inner City, where half of their program was them improvising together and then getting people from the audience to come up and improvise with them. Dana. Megan and Dana. Okay. And um, it was just a joy to actually get to go up on stage and do things with really highly skilled improvisers. And it made me better as an improviser. Absolutely. So when did you get an idea about writing a musical? Were you taking any writing classes or musical improv classes? Well, um, let me put this in the right order. Okay. Um, After we finished improv, we took sketch comedy writing. Yes. Which was really interesting being a 50-something in a class full of 20-somethings who don't get your references. Yeah, exactly, exactly. For, for example, um, one of the sketches was to do a parody. So I did a mashup of Rodgers and Hammerstein musicals, thinking that everybody knew The King and I in South Pacific and The Sound of Music. Well, it laid an egg because nobody, including the instructor, knew what I was doing parodies of. But the fun thing is, um, my community theater was doing a Rodgers and Hammerstein review that summer. So we incorporated the sketch and it played really well to people that knew the references. Exactly. So, So I go all the way through um sketch comedy and then there was a couple of classes that were devoted to solo sketch writing and so i signed up for that i'm sorry you you just you just froze so you had last said i went all the way through sketch comedy and then they offered some solo sketch writing and so 
um, the head of the writing department was actually in the instructor. And the first exercise that I did was I did a monologue as the baby grand piano that's in our living room talking about no one uses me anymore. And I realized in this class how hard it is to be interesting and funny by yourself. <laughs> and so it was suggested to me by the head of the writing department that you've got a really interesting story. If you apply for student stage time, I'll make sure you get it. So in March of 2002, I found out that I had stage time for shows in September 2002. And I did the smartest thing that I ever possibly could have. I went and talked to Jay Suko. And we sat in the student lounge for probably about 10 hours. And he learns more about me, my background, et cetera. And he said, the one thing that your show has to be is a musical because you love musicals. Well, I had encountered Stephanie McCullough. Yes, yes, the goddess. In, in the um, improv classes. And um, we hit it off. We really enjoyed each other. And so when it came time to sit down and write the songs, I had ideas for what the songs needed to be. And I could do the right-handed part. And Steph was the left hand. Or as we called ourselves, four buns on a bench. <laughs> <laughs> we were both seated next to each other, um, communicating in ways that only musicians can communicate. Oh. And so we developed the songs together pretty much. Uh, the first song that I wrote was the swimming song, because you don't give away the joke of the song in the song title. So I had just been working with a personal trainer at one of the gyms and we figured out how I could get in and out of the swimming pool by myself. It was one of those ladders that you had to climb and I really had to test my balance and figure things out. So I'm now able to go to the gym by myself, get in the pool by myself and I'm going down my lane doing whatever I was doing to get the exercise. Sometimes I'd be walking. Sometimes I'd be using my left hand. Guy next to me is doing the breath stroke. Guy next to me is doing the butterfly. And I think to myself, you know what? I'm swimming like nobody else does. I'm doing the stroke stroke. <laughs> and so that, 
So that developed into the first musical number that we did. And um, then I came up with every musical, especially Sondheim musicals, has an opening number that tells you who these characters are. And so I sat down and I actually wrote the tune um, with my one hand before I started to craft the lyric. And it's a song called the An Average Guy. And right. it talks about my life before I had the stroke. So people had some kind of reference to the journey that I was going to take. And then we have a song, and I told you about the uh, incident with TPA in the emergency room. Well, the first version um, ended with Michelle, or the character Michelle singing, give him the drug, give him the drug, give him the fucking drug. <laughs> and the second time we did the show, we found a different way um, to do the number. But I think that line is still in the song because it really talks about anger and what it's like for the spouse to have to go through all of this. And so I did a um, song called Therapy, Therapy, Therapy that in basically 10 minutes takes me through all of the therapies that I did at Mary and Joy. And that's the beauty of musical theater is that you can condense and show so many things within the space of 10 or 15 minutes. Exactly. And I was going to say, with this podcast, I'll be having a link on my website of where they can, where folks can see the show as well. That is cool. Um, the other, the other neat thing is, as the script developed, and Jay is not a Broadway musical guy. He just said, "Okay, you need a point at this point where." you and Michelle share a musical moment together. And so I came up with the concept that we don't have kids. We have our own way of communicating. And I came up with a song called Nobody Gets Me But You. And it's a really sweet moment in the show. And then Jay said, well, you did so well with that. Michelle needs a moment where she is trying to process everything. And um, so I came up with a song called What, what Can You Do? And she's trying to figure out how she can react to all of this. And we went through the saga of social security, which is an exaggerated sequence. <laughs> a lot of it is <clears throat> based on fact, but a lot of it is exaggerated because you can do that in the theater. And the last, the last um, we've done the show three times. 
the last time was uh, my community theater needed a cheap way to <laughs> um, produce some outside shows. And so they approached me and said, can we do the Mighty Ted? And I said, yeah, but what I'd really like to do is not play myself this time. I want to um, be an audience member to observe huh? how the material is having an effect on people. So we found a way for me to be on stage at the beginning and the end of the show. But there was another actor that played Ted. And um, one of the actors that uh, was in the second version of the show, Jessica and I became really, really good friends. And I thought I needed to write a song for her. And she played one of the therapists, Aggravating Anne. And... Um, <laughs> And she was always forcing me to try and pick up bean bags with my left hand. And so um, I came up with a musical number, The Bean Bag Rag. And so that's <laughs> new for the last for the last version of it. But the as, as you know, theater is always evolving. And so I really need to start focusing. I am thinking that with the stage that I'm at right now, there actually needs to be two TEDs. Me reflecting on what I've learned and then another TED that's going through the process. Uh -huh. So I can observe what my character or what, what I have gone through and put it in a different perspective to the audience. And I'm thinking that the title of the show needs to change. Two Ted's are better than one. <laughs> I like it. I love it. So when you were sitting in the audience watching the performance, what was that experience like for you? What discoveries did you make? Well, I found out that they don't have to see a guy that's had a stroke be on stage to relate to the message and the story of, um, of the show and that other people are capable of picking up and leading a company um, to do a show. I could tell which lines landed with an audience and which ones I wanted to rewrite. Um, and it just was a really big learning experience that an audience could follow the journey and I didn't have to be there. Even though I was there every performance, um, you just learn so much about your material. And when you can see it play before an audience, you know what works and what doesn't. The one thing that we discarded, oh, and the other thing that I need to go back and talk about is the Mighty Ted. It sounds like a big overinflated way to think about yourself. But I didn't come up with that nickname. 
My best friend from high school is here in the Chicago area. And Mary and I bonded when we uh, got detention in sophomore year of high school, fighting with rulers during Spanish class. <laughs> so anyway, um, when I first got to Mary and Joy, um, Mary set up a blog. She's a nurse. So she would throw in some medical information. But Michelle could primarily write what was happening with me um, to the blog so people didn't have to call her and ask the same questions over and over. And as far as I know, the Mighty Ted blog, which really relates a lot of what that Mary and Joy experience was, is still up and live. We haven't really contributed anything to it in a few years. But if, if your listeners are really interested in finding out more of what the experience was as I was going through therapy, um, that's a really good thing to read. Okay, well, we'll have a link to that for sure, Ted. Now, have you thought about performing this at a rehab or for people with who've suffered strokes as well? Because it's so inspiring to other people. I am. Well, now that Michelle is retired, we're looking at a way to market it in a way um, that other rehab facilities um, the other interesting thing is I've been doing a lot of um, studies with um, Northwestern Medicine, um, Shirley Ryan Ability Lab, which is here in Chicago, and uh, Midwestern University, where my first physical therapist, Sergeant Sarah, um, <laughs> is now a faculty member. And let me tell you about Sarah. Um, I think the scariest thing that I ever did was try to get out of a wheelchair and rely on a leg that was not stable. But she taught me the skills. And what we found out was she was into theater too. And when she was in high school, she played the role of Eulalie McKechnie Shin, the mayor's wife and the music man. Well, when I was 11, I was Winthrop in the music man, the Ron Howard part in the movie where he left. And um, so as I was getting up, I wanted to test her on if she remembered her cue lines because I know this show forwards and backwards. And so I would give her cue lines and it took my mind off the struggle that I was going through because I was focusing on something fun. Well, they have something that they call the six minute walk test. <laughs> and the most difficult thing about the six minute walk test is you can't be in conversation. And that the person administering the test at certain times during the test would go, you've been walking for one minute. You are doing a really good job. 
Well, no one could do that kind of coaching like Sergeant Sarah. So anytime that I've had to do the six-minute walk test, I always tell the person that's administrating it, you're really on the line here because you're being compared with the best. And <laughs> well, but what I found with my therapists is... Um, and the best ones know how to connect with you beyond your disability. That they're not just, they're focused on their job, but they're focused on you as a person and what is going to do the best to push you forward in making gains in your therapy. Yeah, absolutely. I've I've had a lot of physical therapy myself in my life. In fact, I just completed a recent course. And when they really care about you as a person, they're interested in what happened the last few days and they want to know more. It just makes the whole experience better because you're feel, feeling more uplifted and happier and connected. And that's what it's about anyway, about connection. And uh, Ted, this has been an awesome talk today. I have laughed and I have cried while listening to your story. And I'm so touched by all of your accomplishments. Well, as you can tell, and your listeners will be able to tell, you know, I have choked up, teared up, because you don't live with this and you can't be in a neutral position about it. And I've always been an emotional person. And, oh, I just have one other story I have to tell you. Sure, sure. Um, people say that, people say now that I say really outrageous things. And when I say <laughs> something outrageous, I blame it. Oh, I had a stroke. I don't have a filter. And people that knew, that know me will be the first to pipe up. You didn't have a filter before the stroke. Yeah. So, yeah. and the other funny story about therapists is the most recent one that I've worked with. I found out that he likes dirty jokes, but uh -oh. his father-in-law likes dirty jokes even better. So um, at, a, at a Christmas party, my uh, gift was a calendar, 365 jokes you can't tell your mother. So I've used that as a lot of my material working with therapists and they seem to appreciate it and they don't get offended. So that's good. Oh, that's very good. And uh, my my podcasts aren't always PG, but maybe after we end this session, you'll stay on and tell me one of your favorites because I love a good Oh, joke. I will. <laughs> I will. Well, listen, um, I'm hoping we get to meet again and maybe you'll come to Florida and with uh, produce it down what, here. We've got a lot of people down in Florida here. What part of Florida are you in? I'm in the West Coast. It's called Naples. And we call it Naples. Okay, that's not too, that's actually not too far from my mother's up in Pinellas Park. Okay, no, that's fairly close. Actually, yeah, I've done some work up there. And we call it Naples by the Gulp because we have one of the highest per capita rates of alcoholism. You know, people who retire, what's there to do but go to happy hour, so. <laughs> well, 
library story. The people that book conventions always wanted the library conventions because librarians drank more than anybody else. <laughs> There's a study out there that says that. So. I'll be aware of that next time I'm at the Collier Public Library. Well, Ted, you're yeah. a gem and a jewel, and I'm so grateful to Jay Suko for mentioning you to me and watching your work and talking to you today. And I hope I see you in Florida at some point. That would be really cool. I think I think that's a guarantee. Wonderful. Well, thank you again for all of your time, and have a wonderful rest of your day. You too, Margot. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.